Welcome to Mental Health Film Comment. This is Brian here with you. The Social Dilemma is a 2020 film about the good things, but mostly the bad things, if we're going to be honest about the film, in regards to social media and the consequences of of social media. Joining us today is McKenna Herford, psychologist and host of Revealing the Ivory Tower. Uh, McKenna, thank you for being here today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk about this for sure. Definitely. No, um, I do want to mention a couple resources up front. I know there might be some of you out there who may need to um, just aren't doing too well today. And, and so if that if you're not doing too well today, I know that there's a crisis text line in the U.S. You can text HOME, H-O-M-E, to 741-741. In the U.K., you can text SHOUT, S-H-O-U-T, to 85258. And depending on where you are in the world, um, check your local listings as I say. Um, so, so McKenna, thank you for being here t- today. I appreciate it. Um, now, the social dilemma, um, I was happy to see that you mentioned it on, on, on your show, on a prior episode. And there's yes. a lot, a lot about mental health in, in, in the film and the um, so definitely a lot to to um, to, to d- digest from that. Absolutely, yeah. They talk about the political consequences, which of course I can't really talk on as much because I'm certainly mm-hmm. not an expert in that area. But yes, when they were talking about mental health, that got me pretty excited because it's it's definitely a double edged sword there with social media. Correct. Now, I had mentioned to you prior to us recording, I have a media arts background. So a lot Mm -hmm. of what they were talking about by by way of the predictive, all these different different subgenres of psychology, like predictive, you know what I mean? They had like probably a half dozen different, um, I don't know if they, are, are those considered um, like valid areas of study in, in so far as, as psychology, but when someone's pursuing higher education in psychology, can they specify, okay, this is what I want to focus on? Or is that like an industry specific designation? That's a good question. So, so from what I remember, they were speaking a lot on kind of the the more like advertising piece or like the marketing growth hacking, all that stuff, which was really interesting. Um, It would be like, there are some areas of advertising in psychology. Um, There are about, I mean, there are like 40 or 50 different types of psychology. I think a lot of people don't realize that very few actually provide therapy. The rest are working in you know, policy or with the government in some way and contracting or consulting. And the tricky part is a lot of that inherently goes against our ethical code because there, there is inherently some manipulation there. And of course there is a little bit in research too, right? Like when we do research, but 
when we do research, it's for the greater good. And so you have to weigh the benefits and the costs. And so that's definitely a tricky part. There are a lot of people that really specialize in researching the effects of social media and what that looks like. I can say for sure that there are a lot of psychologists who do provide therapy that are really kind of trying to get ahead of the curve and try to give recommendations for um, taking breaks from social media. It obviously causes a lot of issues with couples now. um, And the big one is kids. And they mentioned that in the, Mm -hmm. in the documentary. And that was an important one. Definitely. Now, um, what was, what was your path into psychology? What, what, what led you on on your way into psychology? So I went to school for 11 years. I got my bachelor's. I, I knew for a long time that I wanted to go into psychology. I know that the average undergraduate college student kind of changes their mind a couple of times, but I already knew. So I knew the straight path. So I got a bachelor's degree and then I did a master's in psychology, which is a little different than what most people do. And then I got a PhD in counseling psychology. And so it gets a little confusing because there are some other more specified types of psychology that also provide therapy. And so that definitely gets confusing for people, but basically counseling psychology is a really versatile type of degree. So There are a lot of different things you can do with it. Um, I do provide therapy, assessment, consultation, but I could easily stop all that and do um, just professional consultation, work in big policy type stuff. So that's why I wanted to go that route because it's a really versatile degree and I get bored pretty easily. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, one of the things that that I've noticed in in the last few years, especially, is there has been almost like in, in terms of there's been like the, the, these two extremes. You know, one extreme is psychiatric medicine and, and, and meds and blah, you know, blah, blah, blah. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're evil and, and et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And then you, uh, the other side that is the complete opposite of that um, in, in terms of, uh, you know what I mean? Yeah. So that's been just fascinating to me is that mm-hmm. there has been like these two, po- and, I, and, I, and, and I'm honestly supportive of whatever, recovery looks like for someone for those who are able to navigate you know a a plan with their doctor i I, i'm supportive of that if there's those who have their their doctors uh plan to taper off um some or all meds i'm supportive of that and so i i've always been um you know, so whenever I hear these two sides going at it, I just mm-hmm. think, okay, well, where's, where, where's the uh, person who's you know, dealing with this? You know what I mean? Yeah, um, that's, you're highlighting uh, some of the, the issues that I have myself actually. So the, the sides that you're talking about actually equally frustrate me for, for the opposite reason. So mm-hmm. on the one hand, you have very like old school medical model. Um, that's very much, you know, I'm looking at what's wrong with you and I need to fix you. And then there's the other side that's kind of saying, well, that's kind of the wrong way to look at it. You know, there are a lot of things that are going right for this person. The way that you typically do therapy may not work for that person or various cultural groups. You're not taking into account like external things that that person has no control over. 
Um, and so on the one hand, it can get way too kind of cold and clinical and medical, which mm-hmm. were not medicine, but on the other hand, it can get a little like, <laughs> we're making it up as we go. And so, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think that's the tricky part is trying to bring those sides together because it is complex. And like you said, the ultimate goal is what works for the individual person and really individualizing it. And that's the tricky part. Well, one question I had in the regard is how much um, familiarity do you have with something? And you had alluded to, I know, sociology, mm-hmm. on one of the, but also anthropology. Because when I was watching The Social Dilemma, part of me was wondering if the anthropologist in the audience is looking at this going, well, this is, they're talking about, you know, Eurocentric, Americentric, Mm -hmm. Western culture, which, and they would be looking at it going, okay, well, what about, you know, people in the, you know, Amazon rainforest or wherever, where they don't Mm -hmm. have the same, you know, 24 seven cell phone nagging at them, because that's, that's not technically not a universal uh, phenomenon. It's for the right. most part, a, a Western phenomenon. Yeah, no, that's an excellent point. Um, I hadn't considered anthropologists and their view on this, but I think, I mean, certainly they, they deserve um, a platform for it. Mm-hmm. I will say the reason I chose counseling psychology versus clinical psychology, they both provide therapy. There are very minor differences and they're much more alike than different. And so I don't want to amplify the differences, but counseling psychology, we kind of, um, we're not as great necessarily in some of the technical aspects of like manualized therapy, but we pride ourselves on taking into account those cultural pieces. So like you said, the, the Western kind of Eurocentric pieces, um, because, uh, like one example is social media can be, can actually be really helpful for collective coping. And for some cultures, com- community-based coping is how you deal with like trauma, for example, like if there's a natural disaster, it's more like, how can I help my community and not so much myself? And we don't see that in the U S and so it actually would be super interesting to see in some of these other countries where, there is more community-based um, involvement and coping since that's already been seen as a benefit in the United States. I wonder mm-hmm. how, how it would look in, for example, maybe some Asian countries or Asian cultures. Yeah. And one of the things that, that just occurred to me as far as talking about this film and and just to clarify it it's not technically talking about the film is this is not a movie podcast but about the 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 themes in the film um is this is being recorded on a week when a certain public (laughs) official was booted off twitter and i mentioned that because those of you at home or wherever you are listening, you're likely going to be hearing this in, I would imagine, late January, early February timeframe. But the day that we're recording this and the day that wherever you are listening to it, the landscape, I'm 99.9% certain, will be different than it is today. Yeah. And just how it was when this came out. I think it came out, well, like late summer timeframe, I think, like September mm-hmm. or October timeframe, because there are parts of it that 
seem obsolete today mm -hmm. that accordingly there there are likely going to be parts that will be obsolete when people are hearing this podcast yes i was actually thinking <laughs> that myself because one of the things that uh, Tristan Harris had been calling for and has been calling for for years is, you know, now that social media, of course, unintentionally, it's not like they really could see this happening or predicted it, but there really is such an impact on human behavior at this point, which I do agree with. And so then at some point, ethically, you have to step in at some point. And so when I saw that yesterday, I thought that was really interesting. And so there were some people that were like, yes, you know, social media needs to be, um, you know, taking, taking the stand or this intervention. And of course there's some people that are like free speech and then some people are like, well, isn't it kind of late to have stepped in? And yeah, so that, exactly, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, definitely. But, but, but there's no denying though. And, and, and the, the social dumb is very clear on this is that, whether there's a direct, you know, point A to point B correlation or whether it's, you know, point A to point B to C to D, there is still a role mm -hmm. in so far as the rates of suicide, uh, people who, who we've lost in large part, or, or whether it's in large part or small part, due to the influence of, of social media. A lot of people who, who, who we've lost who we should not have lost. Yes, um, that's definitely the case. I would like to see some other studies too, pulling in potentially some some other variables that, well, could still be indirectly related to social media. Like, you know, we get 24-hour news sources now. I mean, we've had those for a few decades. And so things may be amplified. We have a negativity bias as far as news goes. So we tend to prefer news that is kind of negative and so that's just looming yeah. but absolutely i mean cyberbullying was not a thing you know a few decades ago like yeah you, you'd go to school and maybe it was horrible you get the crap beat out of you and then you go home and then you're safe right <laughs> but now you're not potentially um and kids don't realize they really don't realize like what they're doing or the complexities of social media. I mean, even the adults, you know, they're watching this documentary and they had no idea how much of an influence it had on their day-to-day -day behavior. So certainly kids don't. Um, and also just, I think Instagram has had more of a correlation with unhappiness or depression, which kind of makes sense because you see more pictures on Instagram and it's always, you know, positive pictures. Mm -hmm people want to put their best foot forward. And so you're not seeing the full realm of, of people's reality there. So it's absolutely had an effect. Right. Now, now, as far as the, the different people in, in the film, there, there mm -hmm. tended to be a mix of, I know that there was, there were some professors, uh, right. the, the woman from, from Stanford, I believe was one of them, but there, so it was a mix of the industry people and the academic people and mm -hmm. part of me got a feeling like they wanted to clear their conscience in a way did you get did you get mm -hmm. that same feeling like they wanted to kind of set the record straight with something that's sort of been bothering them they just wanted to did you get did you get that feeling at all when any of them were yeah talking? absolutely I think that's 
such a tricky spot to be in where, I mean, no one likes to admit, especially on a large scale that they were wrong or that they did something wrong. And so, especially with the potential consequences of that, like a company coming forward and admitting like, wow, like we really messed up. And so, but there are certainly people within these companies that again, like no one predicted when this first started that this is where it would end up. But I definitely got the sense too of, wow, like I, I was a part of this and now I'm seeing what's going on. And I wonder if that's even more the case now, considering the events that have happened this week. Oh, absolutely. And, and more so with various other social media platform, which I'm not going to name for Sure. <laughs> not, not wanting to give them any more publicity, but, uh, you know, various adjunct or um, additional social media that feed into conduct and language that has been kicked off other platforms. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. That's been um, one of the genies that you wonder if it could be put back in the bottle. Yeah. No, that I, 100%. I mean, that's, that's such a tricky thing. And I think this week too, things were amplified. A few things that stuck out to me in the documentary were kind of noting how much more frequently fake news articles are more likely to be clicked on. Yeah. And then I, I hadn't even thought about how social media is really where news stations get their audience. And so they have to have like kind of clickbait articles because they need there's so much news that you have to kind of amplify the headline or make it attention grabbing in some way to get people to click on it. And when you see, so there's a lot of incentive to either exaggerate what's happening or completely falsify it. Mm -hmm. And then another piece that I think people aren't understanding. And I think Tristan did a good job of kind of really zooming out and saying, you know, if there are countries, again, this is not my area of expertise, but it makes Mm -hmm. sense. Um, If there are countries that are wanting to intervene, like the political side doesn't matter. The goal is chaos, like, Mm -hmm. or eliciting discord of some sort. And so if you see that this week, I mean, again, like it just, everything from the social dilemma seems amplified this week. Yeah, it, it does. And, um, and, and when, when I was prepping the, the, the show today, well, you know, as much prep I can, as I can do, uh, so to speak. <laughs> um, and and I, I saw that you had mentioned this on, on one of your shows. It just seemed ideal for what the whole point of this podcast is about, you know, having those conversations about, um, you know, and another thing that, 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 that the, um, that, that, that the documentary sort of drove home is how there's an active exploitation mm-hmm. of, of addiction. There, there's a, a quote in there about how the, you know, the only two industries who, who call their customers users <laughs> are, are illegal drugs and, and tech companies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the addiction piece is, and I try to highlight that in my podcast, it's complicated um, because it really depends on how you define addiction. This was one of the pieces of the documentary that I think was well-intended and certainly there's concern there, but it's maybe oversimplified a little bit. Um, so for example, <clears throat> 
Tristan referenced the kind of infamous classic marshmallow study um, in my field. And so basically looking at delayed or instant gratification. And uh, one huge problem in my field, just as a side note, is we tend to not replicate studies enough. And so what will happen is we'll do a study and then we'll find these results and then we run with it. And so when that's, so when the study was conducted, they found that um, the kids who couldn't wait for the marshmallow were linked to essentially poor life outcomes. But when they redid the study, there were some interesting things. It was a much bigger sample size. They tried to diversify it a lot more. And they found that the kids who couldn't wait, it was actually more associated with um, essentially lower financial resources, which makes sense because you don't know the next time maybe you're gonna eat. But also the differences were minimal as far as life outcomes go. Like the kids who couldn't wait weren't really associated with these long-term negative outcomes. And so that piece, again, well-intended, but maybe amplified a little bit unintentionally. Um, And then the other piece is again, you know, they are targeting like maybe the dopamine center of the brain, but the jury's out on imaging studies, for example, on like whether there's a chemical dependence on social media, like there, there are on some other things, including gambling. Now there's a lot of strong evidence to show that, um, there's a kind of chemical dependency there, but regardless, honestly, we're kind of splitting hairs there. I just wanted to note that it's still problematic and you can be kind of psychologically addicted to anything, right. Where like you have a craving to do it. And that certainly in itself is creating, a lot of problems. Um, and I, I didn't think about it, but, you know, at the end when they were giving kind of their recommendations of turning off notifications for things and my notifications are already off because I don't want to use up my data because I don't have unlimited data. But I, when I have had them turned on, I do feel more anxious because you're getting these alerts. And of course those alerts are trying to you know, grab you in, right? Because the whole <laughs> goal is this business model of looking at ads, buying products. Yeah. So yeah, I, I think that was probably a long-winded answer, but yeah, the addiction <laughs> piece, <laughs> the addiction piece, regardless of how you define it, I mean, there's a huge problem here for sure. Yeah. Well, one of the, one of the, from my own personal experience, and, and I know this is only myself speaking, but I would imagine there, I don't know if this would apply to you as well, to, to some extent, or maybe some of the listening audience, is there are different consumer habits. I don't know if that would be the right word yeah. in, in, in social media vernacular. And for example, um, movies. And obviously there's movies that I'll, I'll probably never talk about on the show because they're not related to mental health. But it's not uncommon for me to be looking at a horror movie and then go to some obscure French film from the 1950s mm-hmm. and then watching an Albert and Costello movie, which mm-hmm. from an algorithm standpoint, would they send me another Albert and Costello movie? Would they send me another horror movie? Would they send me, you know, Sleepless in Seattle? What would they do with those three disparate movies? Because it's not, right. most people are not going to be watching 
Halloween one, Halloween two, Halloween three, and that's all they ever watch is all horror. You know, granted, there may be some people out there that are like that, but typically nobody really watches one, like with music. People may have musical preferences, but I don't know anybody mm-hmm. who, all, who only listens to, you know, fill in the blank. Because I, I, there might be music here on a TV commercial or in a movie, and then you hop on YouTube to see, oh, what was that song in the, in the movie trailer? And then boom, you're going to be getting Facebook pop-ups for some country song because you looked up on YouTube that country song or some 80s song you heard in a car commercial. Even though they may not be your personal preference, you just look to see what they were because you heard it on a, on a TV commercial or in a... You know what I mean? So there's like that investigative quality that doesn't always match the personal interest quality. Yeah, I've definitely, for example, looked something up for a friend or something like that or a product, or or maybe I was looking for Christmas or birthday gifts for another person. And Mm -hmm. so then that ad pops up and normally that wouldn't be something I'd be interested in. Mm And what I found is that if I didn't, because it's according to the documentary, you know, the AI is looking at like how long you're even looking before you scroll. (laughs) And I have seen that it corrects itself pretty quickly. And so what I've tried to do is just randomly like things. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) To try to throw it off. Um, Yeah. I've I've done the same thing. (laughs) Yeah. So just randomly kind of liking things to throw it off. I think the, the explanation of AI was excellent. Like that was one of the things that it Mm -hmm. seemed like they nailed. Again, I'm not an expert in that, but I was definitely one of those people that didn't really fully understand artificial intelligence and that it's already here. And so it can't really deduce why you're liking the things that you're liking, which also makes sense because if you click on an article that's just horrendous, right? like a news article that's just awful, and then another one pops up and another one pops up, the AI doesn't know that you're clicking on it because it's horrifying and you don't necessarily want to see it again. Yeah, exactly. But it's yeah. going to keep proposing that. Yeah. Yeah. It's it like there was this line in, in that um, Howard Stern movie, Private Parts, where mm-hmm. uh, someone's saying, oh, well, these people complaining, they're listening just to see hear what he, like this equally 50 50 you have this, the people listening just to hear what he has to say then you have people who are listening to hear what he has to say yeah i mean same sort of thing here there's mm-hmm. the, you don't the the, the the ai does not know what the underlying motivation is mm-hmm. and yet somehow still apparently really effective which is interesting mm-hmm. true um do you think that the AI um, algorithms will eventually, you know, in, in due time, be used in diagnostic medicine for th- things like bipolar disorder or anxiety? Or do you think that it, it'll be strictly remaining in, in the realm of, of, of Silicon Valley? Ooh, that's a good question. I hope it wouldn't come to my field. Okay. It's uh, because you'd have to have that underlying motivation. Mm-hmm. And and truthfully, a lot of clinicians mess this up where mm-hmm. they'll, you know, just look at the behaviors or check off the criteria, but they're not looking at 
the underlying function of the behaviors, which is why you see misdiagnosis quite a bit. Like there are definitely some, some overlap, for example, so many things can look like ADHD. Some things can definitely look like bipolar disorder, bipolar disorders, definitely misdiagnosed quite a bit. And so I think it would be really difficult for AI to accurately measure that. And I'm saying this, like I'm on a high horse and I also want to acknowledge (laughs) that we, we don't necessarily have the best record of, you know, collectively agreeing on diagnosis. And some of the lines truthfully are kind of um, arbitrary and culturally driven as well. So yeah, you'd have to have that underlying function that AI is currently missing. And even then I don't know, I really don't know the complexities. I mean, there's, there's computer interpretation that isn't using AI for assessments, for example, but a human still has to interpret that because there's still a lot missing from the numbers. So if I give someone an assessment and I'm trying to figure out the diagnosis or what's going on, I can put it into a computer program and it'll spit out kind of the numbers, but that still isn't, I have to be the one to paint the full picture and and pull everything together. And a huge part of that is talking with the person and really getting an understanding. And so, I mean, maybe it's possible kind of a long ways away, but truthfully, I hope not because there's so much um, intricacy involved in that. Oh, absolutely. And, and you had touched on this just a moment ago, but one of the, the, the big problems that I see, one of the reasons why I think a lot of mental health, um, you know, why, why it gets to the point of a suicide prevention, um, you know, intervention and whatnot, because it's often intervention rather than prevention, yes. is that there is just a very pervasive environment of things just being very cold and clinical and impersonal. And that's something that I, I, I felt for a very, very, very long time. And that's part of why I'm, um, you know, receptive to a lot of those who, who maintain the, the same thing because I've encountered mm-hmm. that. I've been in offices where it feels like I'm, in prison, <laughs> like a very yeah. cold, impersonal feeling. I, I'm in, in counselor's offices where I see the little Zen garden thing on, on, on <laughs> our desk and bookcases with, you know, books, you know, bookcases with, you know, an artist's way in, in the, on the bookshelf or other, other books that, I, that I'm familiar with. And then I contrast that with other offices where I go into. And it's, it's like a, you know, in, in some basement and in, in some, you know, go down a hallway, turn left, mm-hmm. go down another hallway, turn right. And then, you know, and there's like a night and day difference. And I don't know when, you know, if at all, that you're going to get that, you know what I mean? It, it just, there's that, that mm-hmm. cold clinical feeling that I don't know how, it, how that could be seen as, as healthy and, and beneficial to anyone. Yes. Um, I think some of that too is generational, kind of like in the medical field where they're starting to slowly get better at being more collaborative with patients. I think we're starting to do the same thing. Um, and truthfully, I'm biased here because in counseling psychology, that kind of cold clinical piece is one that we're fighting against. Mm-hmm. Um, and you brought up suicide prevention 
I think it's really timely you bring that up because I actually attended a talk this week that was really uh, kind of life changing for me. It's called critical suicidology mm-hmm. and really kind of anything critically related means that you're really kind of calling out the field or you're calling out the system in place. And so what it was calling out is the idea that a lot of times when we're doing suicide prevention or really trying to gauge where people are at, um, safety planning, it's, it's, we're scared and we're Mm -hmm. trying to CYA basically. And so this goes beyond and like very pathologizing, like this isn't a super common experience. I mean, people tend to have suicidal thoughts at some point or another, they may just be what we call fleeting where it just kind Mm -hmm. of goes in your mind and passes through. Um, and so this was a great way and it's a new way of looking at it where it's just kind of this phenomenon that's happening. And so you can actually experience that with the person you're sitting, you know, in the room with and, and really work on their strengths. And, um, some of the questions were kind of bold, like, you know, what was it like holding a gun in your hand or something, something that would normally kind of freak us out, um, is actually a really helpful way of kind of bonding with the client, but also really helping them immerse themselves in what was happening. And so absolutely, it can definitely be clinical um, in some settings more than others. Um, private practice probably has the most free reign in like when a person has their own business, essentially, like they probably have the most free reign on how they want to present. Some are just more kind of like you said, you know, I've worked in corrections. Um, I've worked in different hospital settings. I've also worked in community centers and I've worked in kind of private practice type settings. And it's absolutely right. You know, and I try to, you know, kind of view therapy as trying to find a hairstylist or a barber, mm-hmm. um, instead of trying to find a doctor where, you know, if you go to a barber or a hairstylist and you tell them, I want this haircut and it's probably, it's going to look bad. You know, they're going to do it. Yeah. They may tell yeah. you and they <laughs> give you suggestions, but at the end of the day, they're providing you a service. And so, and, and it's about fit. And so that's how I like to talk about therapy because a lot of people don't know they're used to going to a physician where it's very much top down. I tell you what to do and you do it. And that's not how therapy should be. It really isn't. Exactly. Now and you, you had mentioned the, um, the suicide piece of this um, in the U S yeah. um, there was, a, as you may know, the, the, the three digit um, hotline that, will take mm-hmm. effect in a couple of years. And I, I say a couple of years, not 2021, but I think 2022 or 2023. And I don't necessarily agree that that is, obviously it's a good, it's a good thing. You know, the, the, I, 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 mm-hmm. I'll, you know, I'm saying it's a good thing. <laughs> what, what, I, what I'm not on board with though, is saying that, that, that it's a, a wonderful, like terrific news when there are when a lot of the the um, resources are going only to the the crisis resources and right. zero resources for things like you know warm lines and things mm-hmm. like weekend hours holiday hours for appointments stuff little stuff like that that could make a huge difference between someone having needing to call those being in a crisis situation versus having that that sense of stability on a weekend or evening or, or a holiday or, or a warm line and I, I, I it just boggles my mind as to why 
resources like that are not given the same attention as the crisis hotline. Yeah, I think um, I think a lot of that has to do with really a lack of understanding. And I mean, it's kind of, you know, we don't really culturally in this country focus on prevention across the board, whether it's medicine or mental health. Um, and so people are worried when it gets to the most extreme point and not looking at, okay, what are these underlying factors? Because there's some big ones, you know, like chronic pain, for example, we don't have excellent treatment for that. And that's a big risk factor for suicide for obvious reasons. You know, if you're in a lot of pain and, um, so that's one, what we like to say, at least in counseling psychology is I think clinical too, um, you know, housing is mental health, you know, having equitable food sources is mental health. And so we'd have to be willing to target a lot of structural and systemic pieces. And what you're saying is a good point too, because we're really going to have to target this from all angles because the anticipation of a gigantic mental health crisis because of the pandemic is, I mean, highly expected. Yeah. Even this year, they're expecting it. Yeah, absolutely. Because it just it just seems stupid, for lack of a better word, that mm-hmm. all the attention and resource is going to, you know, the last resort. And it's like, why right. is all the attention on the last resort? And like you said, the, um, the, the various things like, like housing, employment, you know, et cetera, et cetera, those are, those are suicide prevention issues. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's, and I, um, yeah. some people certainly are not going to get help until it gets that extreme. Mm-hmm. But that piece too, I think we can tackle. You know, it, that's one thing that I really appreciate about Generation Z is they're super willing to talk about therapy. And this is what I told my therapist, like there are all these memes about it and they'll post about it. And so I hope oh, yeah, that yeah. that kind of spreads through because there's still a lot of stigma, some communities more than others. And I think the pandemic, if, if nothing else, really highlighted what, like all the different ways that depression can look like. For example, they found that even though people there was a survey that was done and they found that even though people felt more depressed, they didn't feel as lonely. So now they're thinking, wow. Okay. So what does, you know, we thought that loneliness played a huge part in depression, but you know, maybe we're wrong to some extent. And so kind of taking a a new look at what depression may look like, for example. And I think another piece is that people think that, um, that like they associate suicide with just severe mental illness or mental illness in general, when there are certainly a lot of people that don't have Mm -hmm. mental illnesses that commit suicide. And so there's really a fundamental lack of understanding. And truthfully, the, the biggest underlying issue that I think our field doesn't like acknowledging is that we still haven't found a super successful, like incredibly <laughs> successful way to prevent suicide, probably because we're waiting too late to get to it. Yeah, exactly. Um, so as we, as we wind down for the week, I'm um, again, I do want to thank you for um, being here t- today. 
I appreciate it. And thank you so um, much. And one thing I, I did want to mention, I'd, I'd be remiss in my uh, podcast hosting if I didn't mention this, but what you had made a comment to uh, the pandemic and referring to it in, in the past tense. So I just wanted to say you're a lot of people's oh, best yeah. friends I, right now. You had, could you mention that in the past tense? And that's, yes. um, I'm so, so happy to say that because obviously it's at the time we're recording, it's not uh, past tense, but um, no, that's definitely, not. Um, you know, my, my intention uh, for the new year is that, you know, everyone will be referring to that in, in the past tense. So I did want to just acknowledge okay. that. <laughs> yeah, no, I think I was thinking of like, um, you know, at the beginning when we're quarantining, yeah. because that was when a lot of the surveys were done, but absolutely yeah. it's not done. And I think new surveys need to be done because of course now the numbers are higher than they've ever been. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Now, um, as like I said, as we went down, I do want to mention a few more resources because I know that there's um, a lot of data, a lot of information that was popping around the, the documentary and a lot of info that was popping around this, this episode uh, today. So um, there, I know that there's Mental Health America, MHA National org. There's National Alliance on Mental Illness and AMI.org. There's MadInAmerica.com. Um, there, there's also your podcast, um, the Revealing the Every Tower. Mm-hmm. That's available. How would people get um, f- find that? So I have um, an Instagram page, but that also highlights, you know puts my episodes on there, but I also try to post about various mental health things. So revealing the ivory tower podcast on Instagram, Mm -hmm. but also the podcast itself, people can find on Spotify or Apple. Okay, cool. Cool. Good good deal. Well, um, we kind of thank you for being here today. I I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Um, And thank you. um, Those of you at home or at work or driving home, wherever you may be. Um, Stay safe, everyone, and um, talk to you next time. Uh, Bye.